Hello, this is Gerard Robinson, and welcome to another fabulous week of The Learning Curve. I'm going to be joined by the irreplaceable, the one and only, Kara. <laughs> oh, yeah. you, oh, you laugh That's later right. than usual. I do. I know. I'm sorry. Well, you know, I just, I love being called irre- irreplaceable, one and only. I, know that I haven't been getting that much here in quarantine, so I appreciate it. Thank you, my friend. It's good to and hear you. And I don't your expect voice. any... And I don't expect any horrible emails from your husband as a result of that. So that's a good thing. <laughs> no, 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 to no. To say no, in no. advance. It, that would assume that my husband's listening to our podcast. He's like, what, what, are, you, what? Ah. what are you doing? No, I'm teasing. He loves it. Um, no, but things things are all right over here. And um, we've got a really, um, we've just had, got to give Pioneer credit here, a lineup of some pretty awesome guests. So I'm excited for this week as well, Gerard. I hope you are. I am too. Fantastic. So as we're talking about men who may not receive a lot of attention, uh, (laughs) one guy who's received a lot of unwanted attention this week is Christopher Columbus. Uh, I know, right? There was an article in uh, NBC uh, online by uh, Alicia Fieldstadt, and the uh, title is Christopher Columbus Statue Beheaded in Boston, One in Richmond Thrown in a Lake. So that's a pretty heavy title, and I've had a chance to live in both capital cities. Um, so I, or I should say at least um, I lived in Cambridge, but uh, spent time in Boston as well. And so oh, basically, the Cambridgeans are going to be uh, upset with that, Gerard. Sorry. <laughs> I had to I had to make that distinction because I know we're we're located in the Boston area, so you don't got to do that part. No, but please. Um, so no, Christopher Columbus. I mean, this has been an issue for a number of years, but. Uh, I think this is a broader context about the coming down of Confederate statues across the country. And some people have said, well, if we're going to talk about racism, why stop with the 19th century? Uh, let's go back to the founding of what we call the Americas. And so um, someone decided to chop off the head of Christopher Columbus in Boston and in Ouch. Richmond, where I also lived and worked uh, downtown in Bird Park. They tore it down and then uh, spray painted it, set it on fire, and tossed it into the lake. And it has caused some great consternation, particularly in Richmond, where there's also conversation about taking down the statue uh, of uh, General Lee, and there's more conversations about that. But this really speaks to a broader question about how do we define heroes and how do we define who's important? Um, the Native Americans, or who we call the Native Americans, may have a very different perspective of Christopher Columbus than uh, someone yeah. else. So, very tough good. week for him. Yeah, and but you know, this is—I mean, it's it's hard not to have these conversations, especially. And this is going beyond, as you mentioned, this is about um, Confederate statues coming down. This is about how you people are rightly questioning, um, and I think our guest today is going to have something to say about this, you know, the, the, what we emphasize about American history and what that means and who that diminishes and marginalizes and who that glorifies. And so, while I don't like to hear about any, really anything or anyone being beheaded. This is, um, this is a really interesting moment. And this is, of course, we, these conversations were always sort of bubbling beneath the surface in the past decade. Um, but this is a really interesting moment for where we're, where we're going to go next, what we think. I know, for example, at my kid's school, you know, 
we no longer refer to it. I think a lot of schools as Columbus Day. Um, and, mm-hmm. and I'm always amazed too. I, and I think that, you know, that's the choice that communities make that they in this commit this particular community made an intentional choice to to call it that um for the very reasons that you cited that um that many native american people probably feel quite differently uh about columbus day than those of us who who haven't had to even explore what that means we've had we've had the privilege of not thinking about that right uh and now we are and now we should so yeah we'll continue to watch these stories i don't think they're going away uh as we said last week this moment gives me a little bit of hope i think though there's um I'm a little bit fearful that this is a, a rinse and repeat, but I hope that we we see momentum going forward and also that we can have perhaps more enlightened dialogues <laughs> going forward about what this means and 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 where these statues should reside, if anywhere, and and what they mean and 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 what statues should take their place. You know, what 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 should we be talking about in American history? Um, and from what perspective and how many perspectives? So I'm and- go ahead. One little, you know, one little follow-up that often may be overlooked when we talk about Christopher Columbus and his basically declension uh, or decline in American society are the number of people I know who are Catholic and of Italian descent. Yeah. Uh, yeah. To them, they feel this is a slap to Italian history. Uh, they feel it's a slap to Catholic history. Uh, and it's not all Italians are Catholic, but for those who are, it's a double slap in the face. And for a group of Europeans who in many ways were not on the higher rung of society for a whole set of reasons related to religion, race, our religion, um, creed and education, uh, they were not always considered well. And so someone like a Christopher Columbus brought pride to the Italian people. So see this also as a conversation of uh, ethnicity and pride. So just want to put that out there as well. No, I think you're right. And I think I could say I, I, I know some some folks that would feel that way, too. Um, but like I said, I hope that it's a it's a point for it. it there's dialogue to be had. Right. There is absolutely mm-hmm. dialogue to be had. Well, we're going to um, I'm going to shift us from history into the into the now for just a minute. And, um, you know, in the now still is covid and tons of anxiety. If we've shifted from the anxiety about online learning and now most schools are out or close to out and parents have sort of said, oh, thank goodness that's over. Now we're shifting to just anxiety about the fall. When you know, we had Commissioner Riley on last week talking about the green light, red light, blue light, ABCD plans, I, you only imagine mm-hmm. what his job is like, right, for what reopening is going to look like. But but we've got, you know, it's not just, it's all parents are worrying, but then we've got particular subsets of parents that have that have different worries. And among those, parents of children with special educational needs. So our own Pioneer Institute has a great report out this week, um, co-authored by, it's uh, Julie Young and, and William Donovan, shifting special needs students to online learning in the COVID-19 spring. And, you know, what this report really talks about is, so we've talked about before in this podcast, Gerard, this question of, well, what some folks are calling equity. I, I would say it's probably the wrong way to think about equity, but this idea that if we can't serve all students well, then we shouldn't serve anyone. And, mm-hmm. and, and it is quite true that many districts in this country have taken that approach in the spring and they've mm-hmm. done the bare minimum for, for any number of reasons. Now, that raises really huge questions about what if this indeed continues? How much learning can any of us afford to lose? And what this report really delves into is 
the extent to which online learning can work for special needs students. And because one of the arguments is, well, students with special educational needs, so many of them, some say, so many of them can't learn online. And what this report says, and and we should note that these are very well-respected folks in the field, is that in fact, online learning can work for most special needs students, for most of them. It acknowledges that there will be uh, um, some children with specific disabilities that prevent them from engaging in an online platform. And it's not to say that we shouldn't be thinking about those students because we absolutely should. But we also need to recognize that many students who have individualized education plans or a broad range of special needs, in fact, for some of them, online learning can be a good thing. <laughs> These authors cite that, exactly. it's, you know, that for some students, it offers advantages like slower pace, giving students time to sort of step away, go at their own pace, master material as they need to. For some kids, it's about movement breaks without disturbing others. Uh, I know that my kids need a lot of movement breaks during the days, right? But so it's, I think it's a great report. I highly recommend it to folks because it really looks under the hood of this idea that I think I would say it's a false idea that we're, that we're, we're fighting for equity when we say, if not for all, then nothing. Um, and, and shows us that we need to be thinking very intentionally about the diverse needs of all learners going forward and how to meet them no matter what the circumstances. So it's a great report. Well, I'm in agreement with you. Uh, we know Julie Young. We know the the major footprint that she uh, put into the earth uh, some years ago when people thought the idea was crazy. And now we think we are crazy not to have done it sooner. So always glad to see the Pioneer Institute ahead of the game by putting out great publications to uh, keep us thinking and talking. Yeah. Cheers, guys. Coming up after the break, we will be talking with Carol Boston Weatherford. And this week, listeners, we are so pleased to have with us Carol Boston Weatherford. She's a professor of English at Fayetteville State University in North Carolina, and she writes about African-American history, social justice, and jazz. The New York Times bestselling author, she has written 57, 57 books, including Voice of Freedom, Fannie Lou Hamer, The Spirit of the Civil Rights Movement, which was the winner of the Caldecott Honor Book, Robert F. Seibert Honor Book, and John Steptoe New Talent Illustrator Awards. Moses, When Harriet Tubman Led Her People to Freedom, was a winner of the NAACP Image Award, Coretta Scott King Award, and Caldecott Honor Medal. Professor Weatherford's young adult debut, Becoming Billie Holiday, and picture book, Before John Was a Jazz Giant, A Song of John Coltrane, won the Coretta Scott King Honors. Birmingham 1963 won the Jefferson Cup and Lee Bennett Hopkins Poetry Award. And The Sound of Jazz, The Sound That Jazz Makes, won the Carter G. Woodson Award from the National Council for Social Studies. Finally, Freedom on the Menu, The Greensboro Sit-Ins, and Remember the Bridge, Poems of a People, won the North Carolina Juvenile Literature Award. And listeners, we give you all of those titles, not only to show, just a, give a sampling of everything our guest has done, but so you can go out and buy them as well because they are amazing, amazing books. Weatherford is also the winner of the Reagan Rubin Award for Literary Achievement, of course, from the North Carolina English Teachers Association and the North Carolina Award for Literature. Carol Boston Weatherford, thank you so much for being with us on The Learning Curve today. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. 
So given the current moment, uh, Professor Weatherford, which we, we have to keep talking about on the show, it's very important. Um, the state of race relations in America, it's been troubling for centuries, for decades, and uh, it gets more troubling every day. You are an accomplished author of children's literature who writes about important African-American figures like Harriet Tubman and Fannie Lou Hamer. How do you think that parents, teachers, and schools draw on lessons from the lives of American heroes and heroines to talk with children about race in this particular moment? Well, I think, first of all, um, including books about um, African-American heroes and heroines and the African-American struggle completes the story, completes the history. We've not been teaching a complete history. And it's been intentional. You know, there are we, we pick and choose what we want to include, what 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 we want, what we think that people need to know to be to be literate, to be educated. And a lot of stories have been left out, a lot of stories about people of color and a lot of stories that the our, our country would like to forget. You know, like the story that, you know, we stole the Indians land. <laughs> Uh, the story that we enslaved um, we enslaved people for many years. So those stories have been uh, told in a way that at one time romanticized those uh, slavery yeah. um, that um, made the wild wild west seem like it was an adventure, you know, manifest destiny like it was you know a god given right, but. You know, now is the time that we need to be more inclusive in our history. And I think that's where, you know, the, the stories of, of people of color come into play to, to complete the history. We've been left out of, out of the, the telling of history and we've not, been, we've not been the tellers of history. So now we need to lift up those voices and lift up those stories to complete the history. Secondly, I think some of the, uh, the, the some stories about some of the people that I write about, um, you know, like Harriet Tubman or uh, Matthew Henson, who was a polar explorer, a co-discoverer of the North Pole, at least so it was thought at that time, uh, sharing stories about people like that who have overcome adversity can show kids that, wow, you know, look what this person did. Um, and and can the and children can be inspired by those stories and understand that you know, I look, this person looks like me. I look like this person and I can overcome adversity as well. I have potential as well. I have a destiny as well, and I can fulfill that destiny. Now, thirdly, racism is built on, is founded on denial. White supremacy is founded on denial, the denial of, of rights, the denial of the humanity of entire groups of people. And so once we begin to read these stories and learn a more complete history and find out who did what to whom, we can empathize, better empathize with other people and understand that race is a social construct. And it's, it's a wrong social construct. Unfortunately, you know, we have, our country has been built on that. But I think children particularly children, have a much more absolute sense of justice than we as adults do, and they can see through some of the lies um, a lot quicker than adults can. 
So you've just helped us understand even more sort of the lens through which our schools view history, who's left out of history, whose stories are told, whose stories aren't told. So incredibly important. And I think those of us who have thought about this know know all that at some level. But what do you think from what from your perspective is the fix? Um, is it something about what we do? Is it revamping school curricula? Is it who's in front of the classroom? What can schools think about to address the many issues that you've highlighted here in terms of how we talk to and teach our children about race? I think this moment is an opportunity. I think that hearts have been opened right now and minds have been opened and they need to stay open long enough for some some sweeping changes to take place, not just, you know, in terms of policing, but yes, in terms of education, in terms of the curriculum get, that gets taught, in terms of the expectations that we have, uh, uh, that educators have for their students, particularly for students of color. Um, often those expectations are low and that, that needs to change if, if those students are going to succeed. Um, and we certainly need um, more uh, teachers of color. There's there been some there's some research that shows that um, the more teachers of color that a, a child of color has, the more likely that child is is to succeed in school. Um, so you know there are a lot of changes that need to be made, and I think if that's going to happen, then we get we be, we have to talk about economics as well because we're going to have to pay teachers more. Uh, if we right, right. get more people of color uh, back in the classroom. When I was a kid, and, and certainly when my mother's generation was coming along, education was one of the few careers that w- was open to, um, and I'm going to talk about women. Women could be a social worker, a, a black woman could be, a, if they wanted to be a professional, they could be a social worker, a nurse, or a teacher. And so you, most of my mother's friends were either nurses, social workers, or teachers, and most of them were teachers. I went to a segregated elementary school in Baltimore City, and I never had a white teacher until I went to a private school uh, for seventh and eighth grade. And then I only had one black teacher. Uh, my daughter, my son and daughter, my, my daughter didn't have the same experience. She went to a predominantly white school uh, elementary school. I'll talk, talk just about elementary school. And she didn't have a, a, a black teacher until she got to fifth grade. My son, however, went to that same elementary school and never had a white teacher. There was one black teacher at each grade level. And there was a, an African-American principal at the school at that time. And she made sure that my son had African-American teachers. And I, you know, I can thank her for that. Uh, and I'm not going to say that I, you know, I have anything against my, my daughter's white teachers. I don't. You know, my daughter did well at that school. Uh, but it can make a difference for many kids. Such important points you make here. And you've written about so many important people, Professor Weatherford. I'd love for you to tell us a little bit more about Fannie Lou Hamer. You, you know, folks have said she had Mississippi in her bones. Um, and yet she she's this incredibly important figure in African-American history, yet comparatively unknown. Um, as you said, we're not teaching enough about influential African-Americans throughout history, and we're certainly probably not teaching about them in the right way. But of those that we do teach um, in schools today, Fannie Lou Hamer is often left out. Tell us what we need to know about this unsung heroine. 
Fannie Lou Hamer was a voting rights advocate of the 1960s. Malcolm X called her one of the greatest freedom fighters in history. And but but as you say, she is not as well known as, as say Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, and some other men in the pantheon of civil rights leaders. And one reason is because she was a woman. Another reason is because she was um, uneducated compared to uh, to King. Uh, Fannie Lou Hamer uh, was born in Mississippi in the Mississippi Delta region. She was the the daughter of sharecroppers. I think her parents had twenty or twenty one children. So she was. Um, raised to be a sharecropper. And when she got to sixth grade, she had to drop out of school and help her family earn money in in the cotton fields. And she did that. She married a sharecropper. uh, And when she was around 40 years old, she was asked to go to a a neighbor, invited her to go to a meeting at church, a rally. Some uh, voting rights organizers had come to her county, to Sunflower County, Mississippi. And she went to that meeting and she had no idea that she even had the right to vote. This is in the 1960s. That's how backward Mississippi was at the time and how racist it was at the time. But when she found out she had a right to vote, it mobilized her. And at that point, she, uh, ra- she became the first to raise her hand to say, yes, I'll go to uh, the, um, the courthouse to try to register to vote. Of course, she couldn't because she was one asked to uh, write the Mississippi Constitution. And who can do that? But when Fannie Lou Hamer went back the second time, she was ready. And she wrote the Mississippi Constitution, just like they asked. And then they told her she had to pay a poll tax and she had to get money for the poll tax. But she she got she earned her right to vote. And in fact, when she uh, in the first election that she voted in, cast a vote for herself because she decided that, well, she was kicked off the plantation at that time to uh, register to vote. And she decided that she was going to run for office to try to effect change. And so the, the first vote that she cast was for herself. She did not win that election, but she did go <laughs> on to travel uh, the South and even up North to um, speak about um, segregation, civil rights, and particularly uh, voting rights. And she was uh, active with uh, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, known as SNCC. So she was quite a a woman. And she even spoke um, at one of the uh, Democratic National Conventions to uh, try to get seats for the Mississippi Freedom Party uh, delegation at the convention. So she she was quite a woman and one of my heroes. An amazing story. Well, Carol, thank you so much for joining us. This is Gerard Robinson. How are you? I'm fine. Well, first of all, I am a graduate of an HBCU, so glad to see you uh, at uh, Fayetteville State. I've been to your campus uh, at least one time to meet with some students to talk about uh, criminal justice reform and entrepreneurship. So always glad to support uh, the HBCUs along the way. And you talked about teachers. Uh, I graduated from Howard University and returned to Los Angeles to teach fifth grade. And for many of my students, I was the only black male teacher they had uh, throughout their career, maybe with the exception of a physical education coach uh, or someone else. So you you know how that works well. So today I'm a dad of three daughters who like to read. And I know from your work, uh, you said, uh, your work mines the past for family stories, fading traditions and forgotten struggles. 
Could you talk about your own experience with children's literature, uh, what you read as a child, and how it shapes your work? Right. What I read as a child, um, when they were not diverse books because very few existed at the time. Um, I can tell you some of the stories that that did resonate with me in terms of social justice issues and some of the books that I did discover um, by the time I was, let's say, in in middle school and high school. So one of the first books that I read, in fact, the first book that I saw that had an African-American character was uh, The Snowy Day by Ezra Jack Keats. Um, In elementary school, I also read a lot of Dr. Seuss and the Dr. Seuss story that resonated with me the most was the Sneetches about um, some creatures who lived in, uh, I forget the name of the town where they lived, but there were two groups of Sneetches, Sneetches with stars on their bellies and Sneetches without stars. And the ones with the stars thought they were better than the ones without. And a flim flam man came to town with a star making machine and started putting stars on some of the Sneetch's bellies and uh, then came up with a a machine to take uh, stars off because they wanted to be able to differentiate between the two, the Sneetch's did. But they eventually got all mixed up and they couldn't figure out who had stars to to begin with and who didn't, and they were all just alike. So that resonated with me. The poetry of Langston Hughes, which I was introduced to uh, by my mother who um, shared poetry anthologies with me as a child, and who, whom I first studied in uh, fourth grade was probably the only African-American poet that I knew about in elementary school. And we had to memorize his poem, I Too. It was in the midst of the civil rights movement uh, when, I, when my fourth grade teacher made us memorize that. And I'll never forget the line, um, I'll come to the table when company comes. I'll sit at the table when company comes and they'll see how beautiful I am. And I, I paraphrase. But that line just was very powerful to me that, you know, that, that there was this, even though I lived in this insular world, this insular, very insular black world where I didn't have to, I was really not confronted with racism, um, not because it didn't exist, but because my parents didn't take me to places that we weren't allowed to go. And all my friends were black and my neighborhood was black and my school was black. And as I said, it was very insular. And there were places downtown in Baltimore that were desegregated. But still, I knew that the civil rights movement was going on and that there were some wrongs in in society. I knew that the March on Washington had taken place. I knew about uh, that King had been assassinated and that the cities had had erupted um, into into riots afterwards. And I knew that, you know, justice still, you know, was had was not extended equally to um, African-Americans and to others of color in the country. But that, that poem just, you know, just really resonated with me um, at the time. Uh, and then I, I, I and by, by the time I went to middle school, I had begun to, um, and perhaps there, I had begun to discover, perhaps because there, there had begun to be published some books about African-Americans. So I, I remember reading Sounder about a sharecropping family I read um, The Learning Tree by Gordon Parks, which was a memoir of his um, adolescence. And so those those were a few of the books that I that I read. And I read um, Harlem Renaissance poets and uh, particularly County Cullen. So those were some of the things that I read when I was a young person and uh, that uh, shaped my identity and also um, 
help to form my sense of justice. And so you build from your background as a child interested in reading, and now you've written award-winning books about Billie Holiday, John Coltrane, and other jazz greats. Why do the blues and jazz matter so much to the history of the U.S.? And as a country, are we doing a good job of sharing it and passing it along so that the next generation can appreciate it? Well, jazz and blues, well, let's talk about the blues first. Blues, I think, that's that's the language that, the musical language, and also the 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 oral oral tradition that African Americans African Americans developed to express their struggle, that their struggles, um, their economic struggles, um, their their struggles uh, in in society. Um, and even hard, you know, hardships about a lot that had to do with love and family. So that that is a language. The blues are a language that African Americans developed. It happens to be a musical language, but I think it's a language nonetheless. Jazz might even be the rhythm of daily life in in African in in Black America, in in which you you know you live in two worlds, and in order to live in two worlds. You must always be ready to improvise because you don't know what's coming next. You don't know, you know, when you when you step, you know, ahead, uh, one foot in front of the other, you don't know which world you're in from one moment to the next. <laughs> so, I mean, really, you have to be ready to improvise. I mean, look at look at what look at what's happening with, you know, with um, police violence and the violence that after the, the, the hostility that African-Americans have to face. I mean, look at the guy who was. Uh, uh, Mr. Cooper, who who ran into Little Miss Cooper, Little Miss Bo Peep, in Central Park, and I mean he he, mm-hmm. he you know he's bird watching. I mean how colorless can you know can you get? You're bird watching, <laughs> and you know you say something to someone, and you know, and and all of a sudden it becomes about race, you know. So you just you have to. As African-Americans, we have always had to improvise. We have had to wear the mask, you know, as, as Paul Lawrence Dunbar mm-hmm. says. And you have to know when to, take, when, when to take the mask off and when to put it on. I mean, hopefully, maybe, maybe because of this moment, we won't have to do that as much. But I'm not naive enough to think that I can put away my mask for good. So, Absolutely. You, know, jazz, you know, I think jazz is part of that, you know, that improvisation. But it's very, it's very, it's sophisticated. You have to be sophisticated in order to do that. You know, you have to be able I, I to, you know, sense the nuances of, of any situation. So, you know, I, I think that it's important. I love, I love jazz and I like the blues as well. Um, perhaps America is not doing enough to preserve it, but I, 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 I place jazz and blues along a continuum of African-American musical and oral traditions. And so it evolves that, you know, there are purists, like I'm sure uh, Wynton Marcellus probably would not, will not appreciate my saying this, but I think hip hop is on the, is on the same continuum as jazz and blues. Mm-hmm. It's evolved. It has evolved. And sometimes hip hop samples jazz. And, you know, what is more improvisational than, uh, than free than than the freestyling that goes on in hip hop. So you know, I think that 
we we have like 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 all people and like all art forms we evolve you know african americans evolve and the art that we create evolves and it borrows from the past to build the future but i do think you know i do think it's important to to share with young people uh, art forms in their quote unquote purest form. So, you know, let's listen to some actual blues. Let's listen to some actual, actual jazz from, you know, from different periods. There are different periods of jazz and jazz continues to evolve to this day. And as I hear you mention blues as an oral uh, um, expression, jazz, you know, rhythm and, 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 and rhythm and aspect, I think about blues and also think about, since we talked about Fannie Lou Hamer in Mississippi, uh, the field holler and what role that played in creating what we call the blues, but also the spiritual. So, yes, I see hip hop the same way you do extenuation an extension of what uh, people of African descent have used to pivot. Or as when I was a school teacher, I would say there's code switching with language, Main Street, Wall Street. And, right. and you know when to do it. Right, right, exactly, exactly. And you and it's very, I mean, what could be more improvisational than that? Exactly. You know, you're not doing well, it for entertainment, you're doing it for survival. I'm going to share the poem SNCC SNCC from my book, Voice of Freedom, Fannie Lou Hamer, Spirit of the Civil Rights Movement. Those young folks were something else. Most belonged to SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, what was called SNCC for its initials. The college kids saw me for a leader. I made it plain why I joined the movement. All my life I've been sick and tired. Now I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. I toured the South with words from my heart and spirituals I learned at my mother's knee. I fired up many a rally. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. But I wasn't singing for show. I was singing for freedom. Leadership came natural to me as singing. People took to calling me the spirit of the civil rights movement. Well, Karen, I want to thank you, first of all, for your contribution to literature, uh, to education, and to thought-provoking ideas about the role people often on the margins of society, what role they've played for those in the comfortable middle uh, to live with. Uh, Thank you for what you're doing, and thank you for joining us. And uh, the next time I know I'm going to be in Fayetteville, I'll let you know in advance, I uh, would love to uh, uh, learn more. And of course, uh, my daughters have copies of your book. So keep up the good work and know that you have uh, fans here on the learning curve. Thank you so much. The tweet of the week is from Education Next, and it says, quote, any financial assistance to teacher pension plans must be conditional on structural changes that would prevent similar pension funding problems from reoccurring in the future. 
And this is from Andrew Briggs, who's a resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, where I also have a fellow affiliation, and Carrie Codell, who's a assistant professor of economics and public policy at the University of Missouri. And they're basically saying that the federal government is going to um, provide a bailout to states. Um, and we decide to use some of those funds to help with education, that if we're going to impact, in fact, fund um, pension plans, we need to really think seriously about what do we want in return. Um, I had a chance to work for Governor Bob McDonald in Virginia, Governor Rick Scott in Florida, and both of them had to address uh, the pension shortfall, as many governors across the country are doing, including many uh, mayors for municipal purposes. Uh, it's tough. And so I'm glad to see someone thinking about teacher pension plans, COVID and accountability. Uh, none of this means that we shouldn't invest into people who work very hard so that they can retire with dignity and with a uh, nice uh, nest egg. But for too long, we have allowed state and local officials to simply kick uh, the proverbial can uh, down the road. And mm -hmm. given the economic impact that COVID-19 is having on the country in general, whether you are unemployed or employed, it's just, it's just changing the, the nature of the game. So just glad to have uh, this article and always glad to see Ed next um, pushing the envelope on issues like this. Yeah. If ever there were a time for creative thinking, right? This moment has revealed it. So I'm, I'm also really happy to see really smart people thinking about these things. And, and I love the coupling of, you know, um, of accountability with this. So it's, it's really important. I would add transparency. So a good, a good read. Next week, Gerard, we've got another amazing guest. We are going to be speaking with Diane McWhorter. She's the Pulitzer Prize winning author of Carry Me Home, Birmingham, Alabama, The Climactic Battle of the Civil Rights Revolution. She's also got a children's book, A Dream of Freedom, The Civil Rights Movement from 1954 to 1968. So we will continue a really interesting conversation that started today, next week at this time. This is a good time for conversations about civil rights and the role that children's books and books for adults play in it. So thank you, Pioneer, for a nice one-two punch. There we go. All right. Talk to you next week. Talk to you next week. Mm -hmm.